Hello, and welcome to Lou Harry Gets Real, a podcast about arts, culture, play, puns, and stumbling forward through life. I'm Mia Lee Roberts, your announcer and co-host for this evening, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to the premiere episode of this experiment in conversation and music recorded live from the Oxford Room of the Aristocrat Pub. Our guests tonight are entrepreneur, world traveler, Frank Basile, singer-songwriter, Vess Rudenberg, and the good folks who have filled the Oxford Room tonight. Yes, thank you for letting the podcaster listeners know you're here. Now, please welcome a guy who has taken a pie in the face from Soupy Sales, smelled Wharton Downey Jr.'s breath, sat on the Full House couch, appeared for 13 seconds on America's Funniest People, and now has an aristocrat signature drink named after him, the Harry Lou. Your host, Lou Harry. Thank you, Mia. Hello, folks, and welcome to Lou Harry Gets Real. We're going to figure out what that means over the next chunk of time. Uh, I want to start by talking a bit about hitchhiking. Amiya, have you have you ever hitchhiked? I have never hitchhiked. You have have some of the people shout. I have some of you hitchhiked at some point in your life. Yes, some of you. And and for just for your own personal reference, and this may help you in the future. When you raise your hand, you can't be heard. So, <laughs> just putting that out there for you. Um, the summer before my senior year of college. Um, so you used to be able to get a thirty-day bus pass from Greyhound. You could pay a chunk of money and you could ride for 30 days wherever you wanted to in the great US of A. Wow. Uh, between my junior and senior year, I decided to do this, figuring that in between, I would stick my thumb out and see where I ended up. I had a, uh, a job to get back to in July, but I took the month of June and did my 30-day bus pass. Um, I've often referred to that hitchhike around the country, that, that bus ride, that whatever you want to call it, as my shattering odyssey of self-discovery. It's a line I stole from the back jacket of the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, a book some people love and that I pretended to understand in high school. <laughs> I was 20 at the time, and without much money or life experience, and I'm sure I didn't take full advantage of the trek. Uh, but I did get a ride with a guy who was missing his thumb, uh, another guy who was just cruising around because his girlfriend's parents were in town and they didn't know that he was living with her. Um, I hung out with a guy who built sets for the show Hee Haw. Ooh. And we met some people and ended up dancing outside of a Turtles concert with some chiropractic students. That was an adventure. Um, and I had to figure out at one point a way to get out of a car in Arizona when a guy who looked like George C. Scott in Firestarter <laughs> and who had a puppet monkey uh, started getting intimate with his lady friend in the front seat while she was driving. I got out of that. Uh, in between, I walked a lot through America sang a lot of Jim Croce songs very loudly where nobody could hear me. Um, the plan was for me to end up in New York. I went sort of down south from Jersey, across, up roughly. I was gonna end up back in, in, uh, in New York, rather, um, where my college girlfriend was living. Uh, but when I called her from a payphone at Second City in Chicago, she let me know there was someone else in her life. Oh, I then got lost trying to get back to my youth hostel on the south side of Chicago <laughs> at 2 in the morning. Flash forward a year or two. 
My first magazine editor, and I've worked in magazines and newspapers all my life, my first magazine editor was a guy named Ron Javers, who was a respected journalist, kind of brilliant guy, who was one of the guys shot at the airport in the attack that killed Congressman Leo Ryan when he went to Guyana oh to report God. on Jim Jones. Yes. By the time I worked for him, Javers was editing Philadelphia Magazine, which in addition to solid investigative reporting was dominated by stories about top lawyers and best interior decorators. Javers was used to writers with English degrees uh, or who went to journalism school following the traditional path. I had become one of his most prolific writers, figuring if the quality wasn't up to what his senior editors were producing, at least there was quantity. And at the time we were producing issues that were like 300 pages long, so there was a lot to fill. I hadn't planned on ending up in magazine journalism and Javers knew it. He knew that I was doing stand-up comedy on the side. Uh, so at a meeting in his office at one point, he said to me, Lou, are you one of those people who hitchhike through life? Mm. I knew there was a right answer somewhere. And I didn't remember exactly what I said, but what I wanted to say was, yes, that's exactly who I am. I'm a guy from a beach resort town in New Jersey who was raised on fried bologna sandwiches who sold fake dog poop and exploding lighters in a novelty <laughs> shop and fixed broken skee-ball machines in the summer. I picked Temple University because I could afford it and it didn't require a foreign language, which was my worst subject, and somehow landed an internship at one of the best regional magazines in the country. Yes, I'd been hitchhiking and I planned on continuing to hitchhike. That doesn't mean I was going to get into every car that pulled over. But in a time before GPS, I wasn't really into painting a picture of whatever was around the road until I actually got around the corner. I didn't know what was out there. Why decide for certain where you're going? I knew life was gonna throw surprises at me, so I kept sticking my thumb out and hoping, uh, hopping in when interesting opportunities pulled up. And that's been my life. Now, sometimes that's terrifying, sometimes it's incredibly joyful. You don't crash a private party in Las Vegas where Earth, Wind & Fire is playing by having a plan. <laughs> it was one of the musical highlights of my life, by the way. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, we didn't know the show was going to happen. We took the ride. You came on board not knowing what the ride was going to, where it was going to go. So let's, I don't know, let's raise a glass to hitchhiking through life. Yes. Keeping our eyes and ears open to new adventures. Here, here. Nice, Luke. It wasn't planned, but... Uh, when we had our guests lined up for this show, I realized that all of them in one way or another took roads they hadn't expected. We're going to talk about some of that here, along with lots of other things. In that spirit, I thought for this show, rather than a consistent co-host for every episode that we do, and we're gonna be here every month, I tap into the vast wealth of improv talent hereabouts and invite a different performer to co-host each show. And I'm thrilled that Mia Lee Roberts has agreed to be my first co-host on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, I first saw Mia on stage, uh, where was, that was in, on the west side of Indy. At 30th and Kessler. 30th and Kessler yes. at a place that you, was what, a dry cleaner or something? What was it before you guys moved in there? It had been a salon. It had been a salon. Yes. Um, this, uh, Mia is one of the uh, co was one of the co-owners of Comedy Sports and brought that to Indianapolis. Um, Tell us a little bit about what Comedy Sports is. Just give us the, if they hadn't been. Yeah, Comedy Sports is improv. Kind of like if you've ever seen Whose Line Is It Anyway on television. Um, but we do it like a sport. So instead of your MC 
like Drew Carey. We have a referee, and then we have a red team and a blue team, and each team gets up and plays an improv game, and the audience decides which team was funniest, and at the end, the winning team wins a meaningless trophy. <laughs> so, so And it's, it's very family-friendly. It is all ages. It is... Yeah, one of the things I like about it is there's a thing called a brown bag foul, where if somebody calls a suggestion for the audience... Well, if any of our performers use any bad language or if anybody... Because improv is audience participation. We right. let the audience know that if anybody yells out a dirty suggestion, they'll have to wear a brown paper bag over their head. <laughs> and they do sometimes. We do. And we, there also is a groaner foul, which I would be in major <laughs> violation of. The groaner foul is if any player says or does something so punny, so stupid, that makes the audience audibly groan then they lose a point and they have to apologize to the audience. We're going to get to that in a moment and we will lose a lot of points. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but before that, I also want to mention another thing that you helped create here in Central Indiana, which is pretty amazing, is the Gal Pal Comedy Festival. Mm -hmm. There's been a resurgence. And, I mean, when I was doing stand-up uh, back in mid-80s to mid-90s, it was a novelty if a woman was on a show and very, very rarely was a woman allowed to headline a show. I worked two or three weekends a month in clubs around the East Coast, and you would never see a woman headline a show. There was a bias built into the industry. The, the bookers would say, well, people don't want us as if that was really something. Uh, what's changed, and has it changed enough? Well, not a whole lot, Lou. Unfortunately, uh, same improv, stand-up, both very male-dominated um, professions. And so um, there are people who think that you a certain part of the anatomy makes a person funny. <laughs> and um, we've been proving for centuries that's not true. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, Claire Wilcher and I put together the Gal Pal Comedy Festival, that's every March, because representation matters. And we realized we've got a ton of funny women in this town, and we wanted to showcase them. And we have been doing so for the last five years, and it's been terrific. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, some quick groaner foul things. One of the, my favorite, you know, I mentioned the groaner foul. So feel free to be audible on these. One of the, I'm a theater junkie, and a friend and I uh, were doing some reporting from uh, the Humana Festival in Louisville one year. And we had some time. It's an amazing festival, by the way. If, wherever you are in the country, if you get a chance to go down, it's a new play festival that yeah. is so embraced by the community. You could go and see five plays in a weekend, fully professionally produced. There are some Pulitzer Prize winning plays that have come out of that festival, Dinner with Friends a few years ago, premiered down there. Amazing stuff, um, but it's all brand new work down there. So we had some downtime in the lobby, so we started brainstorming. We thought, you know, if a restaurant is gonna be in a theater, shouldn't there be a really good name for a theater-related restaurant? Mm -hmm. So we came up with a few hundred of them. I'm gonna share some with you now. I will judge the success of these based on the degree of groan that we yeah. hear. Um, how about two gentlemen with Coronas? Mm -hmm. yeah. How to succeed with brisket without really trying. <laughs> A raisin in the scone. No. You lost some points there, Lou. Lost some po that championship seasoning. Oh, that's well, my favorite so like far. Mother Porridge and her children? Well, Lorna Dune. <laughs> Somebody got it. Get it. Uh, who's, whose life cereal is it anyway? <laughs> Joe Turnover's come and gone. I'm, oh, these are bad. I'm going to keep going quickly. Two eggs running. Uh, Strawberry Glen Ross. 
<laughs> Prelude to a Hershey kiss. She stews to conquer. My fair ladle. Yeah. <laughs> on golden prawns. Oh no, that's my new favorite. I'm sorry, I like this one. Something in the pork with George. <laughs> I love you, your porridge now change. No? Uh, Jesus Christ Supper Star. Ooh. Go. That's it. Uh, long beef jerky into night. Starlight Espresso. Head waiter in the angry inch. I think we're losing them, Mia. Uh, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's soup. Get it back. Uh, kiss me cake. Uh, yeah, we'll cute. rattle through That's some cute. of these. We're getting bad. Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Gravy Boat. Uh, <laughs> cereal de Bergerac. <laughs> yeah? Oh, that's good. Uh, spiced pork if you can get it. <laughs> Hello. That would be like an Ed DeBevick style. Yeah, that would be nice. Hello, Doily. Uh, edible Rex. I like that one. Uh, moon Pie for the Misbegotten. Oh, Annie, get your grub. I have to find one that we're going to end positively with here. 12 Angry Menus. Oh, that's good. That's that good. good. Can we end on that one? Now, see, I keep wanting to push it. Um, Chef Boyard Desire Under the Elm. And a chew from the bridge. We're going to stop at that point with our names for a theater restaurant. That was impressive. That was impressive. I got hundreds of them. We could go three whole shows. I can tell. Them, but I'll leave them alone now. Um, next up, we are going to bring up our guest for our this is I'm just thrilled that this guy is going to be a part of this show um, even if I can't find my notes and that's okay um, Frank Basile is a uh, noted philanthropist in town you may see his name on gift shops and theaters around the region he's also a world traveler um, who is the author of traveling with Frank and Katrina uh, a book of his traveling adventures um, he's also somebody who has reinvented himself more than once. Um, I'd like you to please welcome to the desk here, Frank Basile. <laughs> Frank, I would I, I'm picturing this and I would love to imagine it. Frank, have you ever hitchhiked? Actually, I haven't. You have not. <laughs> oh, I feel so much better now. <laughs> now, you're originally from New Orleans, is that correct? Yes. Tell us a little bit about your, your upbringing in New Orleans. Well, you know, one of the things I remember, particularly about New Orleans, my family was in the uh, vegetable business, and, uh, and I went to a Catholic school, and one day I went into the uh, the class and the principal came to get me and he said you know we haven't received your tuition this semester and I said well I, I think I thought my dad had paid it and he said we haven't received it so I talked with my mom when I got home and she said well son I had given the money to your dad and on the way to the school he stopped to gamble it thinking he could make more money out of it, and it's all gone. And so I was rather depressed, and I said, you know, we need to do something about this. And so I was only, I think, 14 or 15, did not have a driver's license, but we had an old truck. 
So I took the truck and I drove it to the farmer's market there and I bought a load of watermelons. And I drove the watermelons to a parish. The counties in Louisiana are called parishes right outside of New Orleans. So I parked on the side of the road and put a sign up, three watermelons for a dollar. And I sold 300 watermelons. And I was able to pay the tuition. And that's one of the things that I remembered about growing up in, in New Orleans. And, and from then on, every other weekend, I would go and buy a load of something that a farmer had to sell who wanted to go home, like a load of peaches <laughs> or something. And then I would go sell that. So I began making money in doing that. And it took me five years after I graduated from college to make as much as I was making as a high school student then. <laughs> In New Orleans. That does make you think different. I mean, all of us have driven past the sort of street corner entrepreneurs. And it's so easy to pass a judgment there. You know, yeah. oh, they're probably not paying, you know, they're probably not paying any licensing to do that. They're probably not, they're hurting local businesses. Any of those people may become Frank Basile. So, and, you know, the thing about it is, too, you can do marketing and do, in addition to the sign, <laughs> if the traffic was slow, <laughs> I would go get somebody to come by to pretend they were gonna buy something in the park because people mm -hmm. saw cars parking, they would think it's really busy and something's going on, so they would stop mm -hmm. and start buying stuff. So you really learn all of these kind of things when you really got to. So when you mm -hmm. were talking about not knowing what was going to be next and hitchhiking through life, well, I didn't expect to be a watermelon salesman. <laughs> <laughs> that early in my life, but you do what you gotta do at the time you have to do it. Right. And how did watermelon selling transition into your career? Well, actually it didn't. <laughs> because that was, that was another hitchhiking thing that I went to. Because I'd gone and worked for the, uh, actually for Continental Oil Company. And it was kind of interesting because I was misplaced in those early years. I didn't really investigate what I wanted to do and it was not good but fortunately I was bypassed for a promotion <laughs> which told me you know what I got to get out of this and to get into sure. something else that I really wanted so I went out in those days to the receptionist who did typing and I asked if she would type up my resume because I needed to find another job and she ended up being my <laughs> wife later on <laughs> so you know how these things are and everything and so I went to work for the Ford Motor Company enjoyed 12 great years they transferred me to Detroit to Indianapolis okay. and another thing occurred that I got fired from Ford Motor Company and I was looking for a job but at the same time I was getting a divorce mm -hmm. so I had to move out of my house in Brendanwood into an apartment called Brendan Way and I noticed that the apartments were poorly managed and one day I asked the manager I said, who do you report to? She says, some guy out of Columbus comes in once a month and he invests and he finds out what's wrong and makes a checklist. I said, is he the one who trains you? She said, oh, I really don't need no training. <laughs> <laughs> and right then I realized that this would be a place where I could make a difference. So I wrote a letter to the person who I found out owned the most apartments in Indianapolis and a guy by the name of Gene Glick. How many of y'all have heard of Gene Glick? Yes. Everybody. Yeah. So I wrote a letter to him and I said, dear Mr. Glick, I said, I have no experience in property management. You lead with your weakness because he's going <laughs> to soon find out you don't. Since I wonder why you're writing. So you tell him up front and he'll want to know. Mm -hmm. So I wrote and I said, I have no experience, but I know you need help because I shopped some of your apartment communities, which I did after I found out this one was poorly managed. And it happened that three days 
before my letter hit his desk, he met with his executive vice president, and they had concluded that the management company had grown too large at 11,000 units for him to continue managing himself on a daily basis because he was handling construction. They needed somebody to run the company, and they had nobody who was promotable. So when my letter hit his desk, he wrote across the top of the letter, Max, this is the human being you and I described the other night when they described the qualities that they needed. So again, hitchhiking through life, you just never know when the opportunity will present. So that's how I happened to go from selling watermelons into selling cars, into managing apartments, and now I'm unemployed, but happily unemployed nice. since I retired. And can we hear it from all of those who have been fired from a job? Oh, yeah. <laughs> And it turned out it was the best thing that ever happened to me. But too often, obviously, we don't think that when it happens. Right. But usually we can turn it into that. Yeah. Now, you eventually ended up doing a lot of amazing work uh, to help arts and culture groups. Were you raised around that? Where was the, where's the seed for that planted? I know that, you know, I, I grew up in Wildwood, New Jersey. We didn't have culture was watching people play shuffleboard. Um, Oh, how awful. Sorry. Mia, you were you were from Indianapolis originally? Hendricks County. Hendricks so just west. Okay. Indiana, yes. Right. And your cultural upbringing was, I mean, where did you first encounter comedy? At high, in high school. Yeah. I mean, or, you know, the occasional movie that you got to see. Right. But we were very sheltered. So live performance wasn't a big part of no. your growing up either. So no, Frank, it wasn't. You, when did you first get sparked an interest in, in the arts and, and believe that it was important to help them grow? Well, in New Orleans, there was no shortage of arts and culture at all. <laughs> However, I got none of it. <laughs> Me and my five sisters, we were very, very poor. And as I said, my dad had a pension for the horses and cards and stuff like that. And so things were always up and down, mainly down. And so we didn't have any money for arts or culture, nor was it even on my parents' wavelength. So many, many years later, after I, and then I was busy building a career and all this kind of stuff. It was only till I got to Indianapolis when I was in my 40s and 50s that I began to go to plays and to see an opera and so on. So that's one of the reasons why in our philanthropy, we try and emphasize those areas where it helps people to learn about the arts at an early age, such as the Arts Center's outreach program to kids in inner city areas, because it is so easy to grow up not enjoying the benefits of the arts, which people need to have. And therefore, when, I, when sometimes I see where schools are cutting the arts out because uh. they, need to, they need to conserve money and everything, I'm thinking, what a huge mistake. Yeah, wrong place. Yeah. They, um, you've, since allegedly retiring, uh, you've been called in to help uh, a number of arts organizations that have been in transition, whether they had lost a leader and are in the process of a search, um, or to come in to head a board. You've been involved with the Heartland Film Festival, the Center for the Performing Arts, the Phoenix Theater, uh, the Indianapolis Arts Center you were very involved with, uh, Indie Fringe, uh, sponsored a storytelling fellowship. I could go on and on and on. Um, how do you decide when to say yes and when to say no? My wife always says you need to learn how to say no. 
if that answers your question. <laughs> but obviously a lot more, a yes. lot of organizations ask you for help and a lot want you to write a check. And, and things go on, you know, like, like for example, my first interim job was with the Center for the Performing Arts. When unfortunately the originals, after they built the $175 million facility there in Carmel, the uh, the original CEO was caught having an affair with his married assistant. Wah, and he was like, wah, so anyway, wah, and that, that person was gone. That never happened. <laughs> you know, and these people were kind of prudes, and so he was gone, and I was in a meeting, and I had to go to the restroom, and when I got back, they had asked, they had appointed me to run the Palladium. So that's another lesson you learn through life. Don't leave. Don't go to, and the, go bathroom. to the bathroom when they're making decisions like this. Not but I got to tell you, I really did enjoy even though it was it was hectic because of some of you who may know in those days there was a big battle between the mayor and the city council mm -hmm. regarding the palladium and all of that and the palladium was a political football right in between so i got stuck into that but you know what that's okay for I those listening it. at home this is a three theater complex in carmel <laughs> indiana um that's now in its what about eighth year ninth somewhere the in there? seventh year seventh yep. year somewhere like that yep. but this was very early on after it had been built, after they had its first director, uh, there were some challenges. Yep. Now, if part of your question was, in addition to how you, you know, how do you determine which ones you're involved with and which right. ones you contribute to, and so on, uh, in, in our in our in our contributions, which Katrina and I are both involved with, whenever we have the opportunity to contribute, uh, we look at the mission first and foremost of the organization. Does it fit in with what's important? to us. And as I told you before, one of the things is an outreach to younger people, primarily disadvantaged people, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Uh, so we look at that. And then we look at our uh, affiliation with the organization. Have we been volunteers? Are we patrons? Uh, are we board members? What, what is our involvement? What do we think about the management of the organization? All of these things. And, and then we make a decision whether we want to do it. And I have to tell you, and after we do it, we thank, sincerely thank the fundraiser who brought the opportunity to us. Because frankly, without that, donors would never know how they could contribute to things outside of themselves. Right, what's available. Yeah, right. And that's why when I, when I had addressed the Association of Fundraising Professionals maybe 15 years ago, and I had this great big donor thing down at the Marriott honoring all of these donors, and so when I got up to give my talk, I said, you know, it's interesting how all of the, the, the fundraisers throw all of these events to honor the donors, when I really believe the donors ought to be throwing events honoring the fundraisers. Because without them, they would never know how they could use their money for something really important. Ooh, you know, outside of buying another gizmo or, or whatever <laughs> right. it is, or another 10,000 feet uh, square feet in their house or whatever it is, mm -hmm. to give to something really important. Not that, that a donor would do everything a fundraiser asks, but they have that opportunity to find out what's available and what might fit their particular interests. But even within the philanthropic world, if somebody's dipping their foot in it, it's easy, I think, sometimes to to look to organizations that are quote unquote safe or that everyone likes or that it's hard to have an issue with. Right. A lot of the groups you're involved with are doing contemporary work. They're doing new stuff. There's more of a risk, more of a chance that somebody you may bring along to see a show might take offense at something. How, you know, even within the world of things you can be involved in, what's the benefit do you see to being involved and the challenge of being involved in organizations 
like the Phoenix Theater and Indie Fringe and even the, the Art Center, um, they're doing new work where you yeah. it's less in your control. I'm not, it wouldn't be in your right. control anyway, but you know, uh, putting is, yourself, in the, your money in the hands of artists can be a dangerous and challenging thing. But an exciting thing. <laughs> now, and, and that is a really, that is a really good question because early on we decided that, you know, the zoo probably didn't need our help. You know, everybody gives to animals. The Children's Museum didn't need our help. Besides that, what we could give is such a tiny part of that. So we were looking at organizations where we could make, perhaps make a difference and maybe need help, maybe struggling, maybe getting started and so on. So one of the earliest organizations was when it was a, a very relatively small organization was the Indianapolis Art Center. Mm -hmm. And it was before they built that Michael Graves building. And, and it was, and again, by happenstance, because up until that point, 35 years ago, I wasn't involved in any not-for-profit. And one day, an attorney that I know named Henry Ryder. Has anybody ever heard of Henry Ryder? <laughs> Fabulous human being. He called and he said, Frank, I'd like for you to consider managing the, fund, the annual fundraising campaign for the Indianapolis Art Center. And there I was, relatively happy at the Ford Motor Company, not thinking of anything else outside of how we could rent more apartments and all of this stuff. And here's this guy calling me and I said, Henry, I said, I don't even know what a fundraising campaign is. <laughs> and I never heard of the art center. And at that time, incidentally, it was in the art league. Mm -hmm. So he said, go out to Broad Ripple and, and meet this Joyce Summers of the Art League, and that was my big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the first organization that I got involved with from the standpoint of volunteering and eventually went on the board. And also the first place where I gave more than a few bucks for philanthropy, if you want me to talk a bit about that, because she called me one day after I was on the board in, into her office and she said, what is it particularly about the Art Center that you like that attracts you? And I said, I love the outreach. I like when the van goes out to neighborhoods and makes art available either, either for people to view or to make art who otherwise wouldn't do it. And also, it's non-intimidating for people to come in. I love that. She said, I'm so glad to hear that because we're gonna build a new Michael Graves building and the main purpose <laughs> is to expand our outreach program. <laughs> and she said, but we need funds. And right then, <laughs> being a very fast thinker, I knew I walked right into it. <laughs> and she told me what she needed and I gulped because as you already know, I grew up very poor in New Orleans and I was always afraid ever since then that I'd run out of money. Well, she convinced me that I could go ahead and do this. So for the first time ever, I gave more than a few bucks to an organization, but not without a lot of trepidation and so on. But I felt pretty good about it. And about three or four weeks after I had agreed to do this outreach program for the Art Center, she came into my office and she laid out some plans of the new building. And she said, you know, we have a brand new program that not-for-profits are doing. And this was now 35 years ago, where when somebody makes a contribution, we thank them by naming something after them in the building. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, like the Joe Blow hallway. I said, that's kind of <laughs> weird. And she said, but we, we're doing that because it helps to marry the donor to the organization. In, ensures his ongoing interest, plus with his name there, other people will get the same idea. It will attract other donors and so on. 
And she said, and with the amount you gave, you could name one of several things. And one of the things was a gift shop. <laughs> now, I like to shop, and I love when I go to a museum to stop in a gift shop because you can take something away from the museum without stealing it. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's always good. That is so good. Yeah, that is good. So I said, I'll take the, I'll take the gift shop. So fast forward about three or four years, and the aforementioned Joyce invited me into her office again, and I was hesitant to go in there. I said, Joyce, I don't have any money left. She said, that's okay, I wanna talk with you. She said, you know, on a monthly basis, we have to pay the mortgage on this building, and it's a drain on our operating funds. If somehow we could get somebody to donate enough to pay off the mortgage, we wouldn't have that. And of course, by this time, you know, I was getting smarter. So, so I knew what was coming. And, and I said, Joyce, you know, I did this this one time three or four years ago. To cut a long story short, I ended up doing it. So she comes back into my office then about three months later and says, you know how I told you about the naming? Well, with this new gift you gave us, you can name something else. And one of the things was the theater. And I said, you know, being a professional speaker and loving plays, I like theater. I'll name that. <laughs> so Joyce Summers gets the blame or the credit <laughs> for beginning our string of gift shops and theaters. So from then on, if anybody ever asks us, what we wanted to name in exchange for a gift, it would be one of those two things. But that is a totally secondary reason for making a contribution. The number one reason is, do we feel good about the mission of the organization and the people who run it and what's our degree of involvement? And that's, that is what we look at. It also sounds like a bit of an addiction, Frank. <laughs> You know, like, I've been accused. I think that yeah. feel-good feeling from yeah. donating has yeah. really gotten you. And Katrina. Yeah. Well, can't disagree with that. It's not a bad, yes. not a bad thing. thing. But, but it does feel good. It does, right? Yeah. Well, on the subject of naming, yeah. there is a Frank, I just want to clarify this because there are people who may be listening to this and other, there is a Frank Basile who in his 40s married actress Celeste Holm when she was in her 70s. I just want to confirm that that's not you. No, but it's, qu <laughs> but it's quite interesting because about 15 years ago, I got an email from a guy who said, my name is Frank Basile, and I graduated from IU on opera singer living in New York City. If you ever get to, to the city, look me up. And he said frequently people would come in, would contact me asking me if I would give a speech. They would mis <laughs> mistake me for you. So it just so happened that Katrina and I were going to New York City a few years later, and I decided to look him up. And it's so interesting because I got a failure notice on the email he'd originally given me, so I looked up his name, and then what I found was a front page article in the New York Times that showed that Frank Basile, this namesake, who was at that time 40 years old, was marrying Celeste Holm, who was 87. Oh, sorry. 80, sorry. Yeah, and it was right there, and they were married at Sardi's restaurant by a Supreme Court justice. And, and so, I mean, I'm, I'm startled, and I finally get, get uh, the contact information for her agent. She's still got an agent at that age. So I call the agent, and I said, you know, I want to get hold of Frank Basile, who's who's married to <laughs> Celeste Holm, and the agent says, "Yep." And I said, 
And I said, can you give me the contact information? They said, you know, we really can't do that. What is your name? And I said, Frank Basile, and she laughed. <laughs> you know, thinking that was surely I'm some kook, which is true, but not for that reason. Right. But anyway, so I said, look, how about if I send you an email, you can forward the email to Frank, and then he can make a decision whether he went. Well, he did respond, and we got together. We went to New York, and they were attending the same thing. We were going there for Michael Feinstein's Broadway opening, and they were also going there. So it was so interesting because there we were at the opening, and in come Frank Basile, incidentally, is how he pronounces his name. He said, when you're in the opera world, Basile is too pedestrian. It's Basile is it better, so, uh, it so be it. does sound way better. Yeah, right. Right. So we're looking, and on the red carpet is all of these people are coming in, uh, Liza Minnelli and, and uh, George Clinton, and all these people. And in comes Celeste Holm and Frank Basile. And they come there, and I happen to be there with the Center for the Performing Arts people, Mayor Brainerd and some other people. And so Frank breaks ranks and comes up and said, hello, Frank, and we hug. We just met each other that <laughs> afternoon. So I introduced him to, uh, to Mayor Brainerd, and I said, Mayor, this is Frank Basile. So Mayor looks at me, <laughs> what? In any event, to cut another long story short, Frank agreed to do a fundraiser for us and charge us no fee at the Opera Center, and we called it Basile at the Basile, the Basile <laughs> Opera Center, and we raised money and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that's that's the story of Frank Basile that's and Celeste Holm. Yep. Now, I don't want to let you go without talking about traveling, because your book is all about travel. We connected in large part because for a while I was editing your yep. uh, travel pieces for the Indianapolis Business Journal. Um, now, although you haven't hitchhiked, your your trips tend to be a little different than most people whereas if some of us were going to say oh i don't know kosovo or or russia or wherever uh, we might like book through a travel agency we might arrange a trip with a guide we may want to plan out everything before we go not quite the frank basile approach nope. is it nope it's almost hitchhiking not quite <laughs> because we may only make a reservation, a plane reservation to a location and from another location, but in between is blank. It's a blank slate, and we can put on anything we want. And where are we going to stay? What cities are we going to go? What hotels? What transportation? And all of that stuff. We do it on the fly. So you don't even know what hotel you're no. going to stay at? No. And the first time you brought this idea up to Katrina? She, what, she didn't think too much of it. <laughs> But, but she later, and that's why I kind of hesitated to have her sitting here, because I would. she's likely to say, that isn't how the story went. But, <laughs> but in any event, but sometimes it's frustrating because you can really run into a lot of problems than when you have a guide who takes care of everything for you, interacts with the locals. What I love is that you can get involved with the local places, the people, and the culture because you're doing it yourself. You're making the arrangements. You're doing what you want. You don't have to spend one and a half hours at a museum, two, a half hour at a gift shop, and so on, and be on a bus in between, and, and never contact a local because you're, you're interacting with the, with, the, with the other tourists, and you got a guide handling everything. Well, we don't like to do that. Give us an so, example of, so, of that well, kind of trip. What happens, we, we were going from Macedonia into Albania. Weren't we all? Yeah. <laughs> and lo and behold, because Albania was having a war going on, nobody in Macedonia, Macedonia would take us into Albania because it was too dangerous. 
So, Katrina and I, Katrina more reluctantly, get our, and we travel with backpacks because we don't want to be stuck with something we got to put on a plane and then you, mm -hmm. you have less flexibility and all, only what we can carry with us. So there we were, these two old people walking across the border from Macedonia to Albania and the guards on the other side with AK-47s and all were stunned Climb looking at us walking across. <laughs> In any event, but and you know what? So we got over there and they turned they could not have been nicer. And I said, Where are you going? I said, We don't know. And so how are you gonna get we don't know? <laughs> So we found a guy there who had a truck who was going to the center of town. So he took us into the center of town and I said, there's a hotel right now. And he said, this is the main area, everything happens. And, and the buildings have been repainted because we have a new mayor and he's an artist and we, we're painting all of the buildings different colors to liven up the city mm -hmm. and all of this kind of stuff. And so we got out there, checked into that hotel where we could walk to everything since we didn't have a car or anything like that. And, and that's how we got from Macedonia to Albania. And, and that's pretty typical of things that we have. And, and, and in the book we wrote about some, not selling books because I only got five of them, but <laughs> one of the chapters is called, is called Traveling on the Edge. And I really do mean on the edge because there, yes. was, there, was, there was so much. Just one quick thing that comes to my mind when we're, we're flying out of Uruguay into Paraguay and um, and all of a sudden a plane develops real problems and I can tell, you know how, how earlier I said I'm a fast thinker? Well, when a plane was going around six times and not, and not landing anymore, I knew we were in trouble. And so the, the pilot comes on and he says, I hate to tell you people, but we got a problem. And he said, we, because of weather conditions, we can't land in the landing strip at Asuncion, Paraguay, where we normally land and we don't have enough gas to go anywhere else. So we gotta land. There's a, very, there's a relatively unused landing strip out of town that we're gonna try and make it on. And he said, but rest assured, this problem is, is within the capability of your staff and your equipment, which of course gave us no reassurance <laughs> that they knew what they were doing. So I turned to Katrina and I said, love, I have to tell you, when I booked this, I knew that there were no American airlines um, that would fly from Montevideo to Asuncion because Asuncion Airport did not meet FAA standards. But we wanted to go to Paraguay, so we booked this other airplane. So I knew this, but I wanted to tell you in the event we don't make it to let you know that I, I'm sorry for this. <laughs> so I wanted to get it off my conscience just in, in the event we didn't make it. And of course, obviously we did, but it was a hectic, very rough landing. In, hectic? Yeah, in, in, uh, in Paraguay. And the, next, I was, I was, and the next day we went to the presidential palace and I'm taking pictures. And, and I didn't know you weren't supposed to take pictures at the presidential palace because we didn't have a tour guide or anything to tell us this. And all of a sudden, six guards come from all directions with rifles and everything. And Katrina, who stayed back for some reason, said, watch out, look out for these people. <laughs> so there I am, all these people closing in on me. And I can speak Spanish, but 
under under the the pressure of these people closing in with guns drawn in there, I didn't know what to say. The only thing I could think of, raise my hand and say, "Amigo, amigo, friend, friend." <laughs> so they finally got me. They they took the camera. I thought they were going to bust the camera. They took in those days you had film and stuff like that, and they took it out and they destroyed all of the film. One thing I was doing was taking a picture of the palatial presidential palace, which was right next door to the slums. And I got them both in one picture, and I don't think that went over too well with them. But anyway, these are the kinds of things that that have happened, and you know, we we. we uh, and what's next on your travel plans? Well, we got a disagreement. <laughs> Katrina just retired. She said, "You know, I've worked for fifty years, and it's about time that I took off." So, I said, "Okay, we'll just we just won't eat out as often, and so on. You don't have to continue <laughs> working." And so we'll make it. We'll make it do. So we. So we're going to start traveling again. So we have a disagreement. She wants to go to somewhere in Italy, and I want to go to Papua New Guinea. So we haven't yet agreed. We'll put to this to an audience vote later in the show. Incidentally, <laughs> hey, one one way we chose how to go years ago was I read an article in the Indianapolis Monthly, and the article said, "Certainly, everyone is aware." of this particular cultural phenomenon unless you've been living in Bhutan for the last 10 years. I had never heard of Bhutan, but because Indianapolis Monthly said it was some place where you were totally out of touch with the world, <laughs> we went there in six months. And it was, it was pristine. They only opened the internet up in the, in the late 90s, television in the late 90s. It's, it's pristine. It, it, it is to people like the Galapagos is to animals. Mm. And we love that because you get the culture the way it has been for centuries. That Their national pastime is archery. And, they, and we went to an archery tournament. It's like you went to a coat game. They were screaming <laughs> and yelling and all of this stuff. So that's the thing about it. Even your US travel could be a little is quirky the right word in terms of what you like to go see? You've been to every, or just about every what? Well, you know what? We've been to all of the presidential libraries. Anybody ever go to presidential libraries? So, That's, oh, a few hands. About about eight years ago, we were in West Branch, Iowa. Has anybody been to West Branch, <laughs> Iowa? Do you know what? Do you know what's there? The Hoover Library is in West Branch, Iowa. So we walk out of the library, and I'm thinking how wonderful that visit was. And Katrina breaks into my revelry and says, how many of these libraries do we have left to visit? <laughs> I said, one. Why? She said, which one? I said, Eisenhower. She said, where's it located? I said, Abilene, Kansas. <laughs> she said, how far is it from here? I said, about 450 miles. She said, let's go now and get it over with. Get that out of the way. <laughs> That's right, Katrina. Now, when Lou, when, 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 Lou, when Lou Harry edited that, incidentally, Lou always made my articles a lot better, a lot livelier, and injected some humor that I don't have. So when he, when he got that, and he was able to, to doctor it up, and he said, and it's great, I think what you said was to have a loving wife who's willing to go along with your obsessions to go visit libraries and museums instead of going to resorts and beaches. You probably don't remember inject, but he injected that into uh, into our story. But anyway, so that's the kind of thing. Can I say one more? One you can more, say two more things okay, if you want. Two more things. <laughs> Last year we went to Scandinavia, and we visited four countries. And I decided to interview residents in all four countries. So I interviewed 40 or so residents on our visit to those four countries. Do you know why? 
Do you know what's interesting about those four countries? They are among the top four, the top 10 countries in the world every single year in terms of, yes, happiness, right. Ooh. In my interview, I asked them, I said, what makes you happy? Because I wanted to see what it was that made them happy. And I was thinking maybe Katrina could become happy. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> she, she's already happy. She said going to a beach would make me happy, not Scandinavia. But anyway, so we went there and I wrote, and I wrote it in, uh, so don't ask me what it was, you know, what it was, what I found, because I'd have to kill you. <laughs> and, it, and it's actually an article that I wrote for the IBJ that Lou edited that you can probably get on the internet as to what makes those four countries so darn happy year after year after year. Frank Basile, ladies and gentlemen. And others. I want to be more inclusive. Um, we, uh, if you have questions for Frank or any of our guests, write those down. We're going to pick those up uh, during the break, and uh, and Frank will be back with some questions um, for the live show here. Uh, I, my, one of my hopes was to give our audience a chance to hear some of the most interesting, accomplished musicians uh, from a wide range of genres. And I'm thrilled that we're going to be raising the bar really high with our first musical guest. Uh, a touring musician since he was 19, uh, Vess Rutenberg has been a band member of the United States Three, Zero Boys, The Lemonheads, and more. Recently, he made the transition to solo artist with his disc, Tremendous downtime. We'll chat with him after the break, but for now, Vess Rutenberg. Oh, thanks, Lou. Thank you so much. Amazing stories, Frank. Oh, thank you. It was very funny. Um, I'm, I'm tuning because I, I care. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I didn't used to care. That's what that means. Uh, this is off uh, Tremendous Downtime, my record that came out a little, a little not long ago. It's about a good friend of mine, a drummer named Clyde. Dances when he fights He'll stay up all night If you are uptight Well, he's your man alright He plays drums pretty slow Keeps a good tempo
What side of the tide are you on? What side play? Dances when he fights, but he'll stay up all night. He's smiling through his beard. Yeah, Clyde's pretty weird. He plays drums pretty slow. He keeps a good tempo. If you are uptight, don't worry, he's Clyde tonight. What's that, Clyde? Side of the tide, you on what side, Clyde? You'll meet her in the stars of the storm. Nice. Thanks for you, Clyde. Thanks, Lou. We're gonna be back with another song and more chat after a brief break. Um, we're going to talk a little bit with with Vess. Um, one of the things that I admire most about artists is their ability to reinvent themselves. Uh, yeah. And sometimes reinvention seems like repudiating what you've been, or, but I really see it as building from what you've been, what you like. Tell me a little bit about how, when a relationship with a band ends, how much conscious thought do you give to what's happening next? Or has the thought already happened? Or tell, can you talk a little bit about the transition? You've been involved in a number of bands. Well, uh, being in a band is not unlike being in a relationship with a person that you love in a lot of ways. It's very passionate. It's uh, it, or or a, an annoying roommate <laughs> somewhere in between those two. <laughs> and so, and but whenever anything ends, sometimes it uh, opens. It, just like a relationship, it opens up a hole for something else, right? Yeah, you know, it, it doesn't feel that way mm -hmm. during the first months, you know. <laughs> but then you're, you're, you know, someone's like, "Hey, you want to jam or whatever?" <laughs> and then next thing you know, you're doing something else. And also, and you were talking about reinvention. I think that's one of the great things about art. Uh, you know, as a politician, if you change your mind, you're waffling, right? You know, like, you know, uh, what a terrible thing that you can't change your mind. You know, uh, that's growth. Like I changed my mind so much in my life. You know, and and as a musician, that's kind of the fun is to try to think of something neat to do that needs to be done. You know, I didn't make a record because the world needed another solo record. You know, it's just there's lots of music. There's more music than there's ever been. But uh, I just finally felt like there was something that I needed to say that I wasn't hearing anywhere, you know? And that's kind of the neat thing is you can invent this space in your head and it's just yours. And we were talking about buildings before the show. If I may digress. Please Lou, do. Sorry. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> bu buildings are so, uh, you know, finite and they're just, they're, they're, they're there and you make them and you look at them forever, right? And they're, they're there, but, uh, and, and maybe someone changes them and it gets torn down or maybe it was bad to start with or maybe it's great and no one noticed. But with a, with a piece of music, 
I don't have to go get a building permit and I don't have to hope it's going to still be there or that the next owners in five years even care about why the doors went all the way to the ceiling and the roof's flat and there's lots of glass everywhere. I mean, you know, they, they might just cover it all up and wonder why someone did all that, you know? And, but with the record, it doesn't get changed. It's just there. It is the way it is and maybe it goes away one day or maybe no one buys it or maybe a kid picks it up in Muncie and becomes the lead singer of the most famous band ever, right? <laughs> And that's the neat thing about music is it means something to the person and it's hard to erase that. And I love yeah. that about what I do. Can you talk a little bit about the difference in process when you're, you're creating a recording with other human beings whose you know, ideas you have to sort of synthesize and process versus creating something on your own? Does that carry with it a different set of doubts, a different set of... Uh, minimal decision making or does the process get longer as you're when you're the sole decision maker it depends okay. if you and I wrote an article it might be the best article we've ever written or it might be one of the poorest articles <laughs> both of us tried to write because we might be trying to get out of each other's way mm -hmm. or maybe we're finishing finishing each other's sandwiches you know what I mean yeah and so <laughs> a little something for the people with kids out there <laughs> um, <laughs> I get you no, that, you know, that's true. Right, I mean, I think it depends on the combo. Right. You know, I had a, uh, I've collaborated on a number of book projects mm -hmm. and theater projects. And first novel I wrote with a collaborator, we ended up selling. Random House picked it up. The movie rights ended up selling. Didn't get made. Don't worry. But, you know, we had a, a success in the sense that it got published. Yeah. It wasn't a breakout hit. The second novel we decided to write, which we wanted to have out before the first one was published, so we had another one ready. Mm-hmm. The first one was a synthesis of both of us, right. and it it was we, I couldn't open it now and tell you who wrote what sentence. The second one was a little more oil and water. I mean, it, there was a little more. I think you've hit on gel. That's what happens on the second record. Okay, there you go. You know, yeah. The first one, everybody's excited. There's uh, we're trying together, and then you get maybe some success, or maybe you don't, which is even worse. You know. Mm -hmm. And then you're driving around in a van and you start blaming each other for the lack of success <laughs> as opposed to everyone else is wrong, you mm -hmm. know? So it's, yeah, it's, there's a lot of it. It's, it's the funny thing about art and it's hard to, it, there's no real rules. Right. You know? Now you, uh, we were talking a little before the show and piggybacking on Frank's discussion of traveling, you yeah. traveled with bands around the world. Can you tell a little bit about what your, uh, what did being in a new town every day or week mean to you and what was your sort of process for discovering or ignoring what was around you <laughs> yeah a little bit of both um well for me i uh I, I grew up in indiana i grew up on the east side of town i went to school on the north side and indianapolis is a little bit of a of a cage it's uh it's comfortable but it's a little ugly and and it's it's a great place to be but it's not a great place to thrive and flower and uh and at 18 years old a punk band that was huge is huge all over the world from indianapolis that no one in indianapolis knows about called the zero boys asked me to be the guitar player these guys were ancient they were in their mid 20s <laughs> you should have seen these old geezers and, uh, <clears throat> and so there i was 18 years old i i think maybe 87 or something i they they take me to germany and and i just it every day every minute every second of it i can remember to this moment i remember the taste of the cream that had been sitting out all day that never went bad <laughs> and and i was like that's but that and they're like what do you want to 
make the cream cold. You know, <laughs> you know like I just didn't understand. And I didn't understand it. Everything was so, and that was back when all the money was different. So I came home to the east side of Indianapolis with all of these different currencies, you know, just <laughs> stacks of lira. And, you know, it was great. Sorry, IRS. It was a long time ago. <laughs> I was a kid. But th- that, t- that, those little things, those, um, Un, uh, unscheduled mm-hmm. uh, interactions with people and and you know we played in youth hostels we met people who were hippies in Germany in the early 70s google that <laughs> they were going crazy mm-hmm. and and they they were still doing it and the the burgermeister pays for it in Germany so you know you get paid you know the it's very nice so um, we got to go to all these places and I and then later in life I was in the Lemonheads and traveled all around and I just I, I cannot say how important it is to go anywhere, go to Frankfurt, Indiana, just you know, go to go go far and see something you've never seen and it'll it'll just make you so there's something about it rubs off on your soul. And I don't want you to I want to get to the next song, but I also want to, nah. to anchor a little anchor a little bit folks yeah. may not know about sort of the architectural history of your family. And you had talked before about um, exploring that while you traveled, but this is a rich and interesting story it, that I know is sort of. I'll epic, try to condense it. I'll, I'll unepicize it if I can. <laughs> but uh, my grandfather was a, a, a student of. Uh, wow. <laughs> my grandfather was a student of Mies van der Rohe in Berlin, and uh, when the Nazis came to power, he fled, and he did a lot of. Um, uh, spreading modern architecture through the world as he left and when he came to New York and everything. This is in the 30s. And I grew up in a modern house in Colorado Springs with giant 20-foot windows and steel columns as thin as they could legally be made. Actually, I'm not sure it was legal. I don't know. <laughs> he was the 13th registered architect in Colorado in 1939. And and when I... I was forbidden to be an architect. I was a great... I'm great at drawing. I always imagine uh, buildings... But they said it's too painful. My father was one was a grand was a my father was a grandfather. My father was an architect. My grandfather was an architect, and they just said no. It's uh, our no buildings are still here. Don't do it. But they did imbue me with the love of design. My father would stop and he would look at something and he would talk about why it was beautiful. Or when I was young and you said you liked a building as you drove by it, the car just came to a stop <laughs> and someone turned around and said why. Why do you like it? What is it you like about it? Well, why is that? And you had to explain yourself. And soon I realized that I, I knew why I liked things. You know, the worst thing a designer wants to hear is I'll, I'll like it when I see it. You know, we're going to be here forever, you know. <laughs> but if you know what you like and you know why you like it, if you know that having those windows all in a different plane is just ruining it, you know, just to put them on, drop them right down and it just makes it so perfect and it can make the building go on forever once you know those things. And so traveling around and seeing the world was the greatest gift for me because I was already open my eyes were open and ready and I went and I saw castles and I saw the most beautiful marble modern buildings and the most beautiful marble Greek buildings and and ordinary little towns the alleyway behind it you know trying to smoke weed with a bass player you know <laughs> and there it is and and the when you never stop you never stop enjoying life then it never stops unfolding for you you know and that was what I learned, because in the Lemonheads, we always said, we don't kill time, we spend it. Because yes. ah. when you're on tour, if you start killing time, you, it's a horror show, you know? Because all you're doing is waiting, and you get like 45 minutes of fun a day, you know? So, 
Anyway. Want to do another song? Yeah. Let's hear another song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Um, this goes out to all the people who uh, stop and smell the roses every day and who maybe um, uh, don't enjoy it when a building gets uh, uh, changed. Okay? <laughs> the life we lead is in the weeds and in the garden I can't see dimension. questions frank you want to come back up and join us yes come on very good while he's uh, while he's hitting up one of the uh notes here uh first of all a happy birthday shout out to david Steele over here celebrating a birthday happy birthday david Woo! 64 pearl kid yeah, yeah, yeah. um frank yes a question what is your favorite city you visited and why? Mm, I can't wait to hear this. Favorite city? From a man who's been to over 100 countries. <laughs> Terre Haute. No, what? You took the words out of my mouth. As my editor, you should know these things. Should we have, we you know what? It, a favorite? Whenever I think of that, I, I think of the response that... Um, uh, who was it? Uh, the architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, when he was 89 years old and he built the Guggenheim Museum in New York City. And a reporter asked him, of all the buildings you have built over the last half century, which 
is the greatest. You know his response? The next one. <laughs> you know, and, and I almost feel that way that it's always the next one, but if I had to select one right now, I'd have to say Barcelona. Mm. Yeah. We love that in almost any place in Italy. Now, if I had to select a country, I would have, and, and this isn't exactly a country, but it's Antarctica. We loved the pristine feel of being in Antarctica, despite the fact that it, that to get there three days of of because it, it's a small ice Russian icebreaker you're on it only has a hundred passengers and the thing is going like this rocking back and forth and all of that but it's well worth it and incidentally that was our honeymoon trip. Wow. <laughs> Vess, have you played Barcelona or Antarctica? <laughs> that wasn't Just one of those. For me planning a trip like that, but anyway, but it's it's so pristine and so beautiful to look at all of the the ice breaks there yeah. and the it's just wonderful That's in any a, event oh, sorry, and the other one in the other and the other one i would have to say <laughs> would be the galapagos mm -hmm. because it is again so pristine and as a matter of fact that's one place where we could not travel on our own because you can't even walk, get there without being under the auspices of a guide. In that case, it's good because they don't want anybody to leave a footprint there. They want to keep it for, for generations in the future to enjoy. Is there a, have you noticed a dramatic difference between audiences in different cities around the country, around the world? Yes. Though what that difference is, is hard to pinpoint. Um, uh, uh, New York audiences are very attentive. And, uh, if you can get them, mm -hmm. if you can get them in the club, they watch you very closely and they pay attention. Uh, Indiana audiences are very fickle. They're a little, they're a little spoiled and they're a little uh, deprived at the same time. So it's fine. Um, uh, and then sometimes, uh, like in a, uh, I can't remember where it was, but at the Zero Boys uh, in Germany, it would, it would be more male. You know, it would be like, oh, you know, when you go to England, it'd be like, ah. <laughs> a little bit of that. Amia, you've done improv. I mean, comedy sports chapters are all over the, all over the country, and they have a world championship in a different city every time. How many have you performed in, and is, did you notice a difference in audiences there? I've, I've performed in probably about 15 different um, comedy sports cities, and... Mm. I don't know. Um, usually, uh, an audience is going to root for the home team, so <laughs> that's always you're at an immediate right. disadvantage right. because you're not on the home team. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Everybody likes to laugh, mm -hmm. and um, in, in the end, I, I with comedy, I don't, I don't think I've seen a really big difference in an audience, in audience as long as you've done a good job. Right. Um, somebody asked, when does Katrina get to be on the show for a rebuttal? Um, we'll talk about scheduling that at another time. Uh, somebody else asked, asked Frank if they could be the Sherpa on your next adventure trip. I don't know if that's going to be allowed. Uh, Vess, somebody said, tell me about pesto. Oh, wow. Okay. Who's the weirdo? Um, 
when I was in the Lemonheads, the lead singer, a fellow named uh, Evan Dando, who was briefly People Magazine's one of their 100 sexiest people, mm. <laughs> which I think is funny when you spend time with someone in a van thinking about like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, looking pretty sexy today, man. Um, <clears throat> but uh, he even invented this game, and he was a little nonspecific. Does anyone, everyone know who Evan Dando is? Is anybody? Okay, he's a drug-addled 90s fella, and he's a really sweet guy, and I love him. And, and he, wrote, he made up this game called Pesto. And uh, what it is is sentences with accompanying pictures, and the sentences all begin with the first letters of Pesto, like uh, Popeye explains sex to Olive. <laughs> pesto. <laughs> That's what Pesto wow. is. Wow. And we'll play around later. Okay. <laughs> Post-show yeah, yeah. gathering. Okay, that's yeah. festive. And so this was played while... Well, it, it was, was attempted, yeah. It was attempted, yeah. okay. It, it was going to be a book, but it ended up being more of a, more of a legend. Uh-huh. Uh, Mia, one of the things I wanted to ask you earlier, we talked about different kinds of transition, different kinds of dealing with challenges. We talked about being fired. We talked about finding different paths. You had some... Uh, to put it lightly, challenges thrown at you. Mia is a four-time cancer survivor and MS advocate. Um, tell us a little bit about how you navigate your creative life in conjunction with you know, what has been thrown at you medically. Okay, well, <laughs> um, in 2004, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis um, by going blind in my right eye and trying to figure out why that happened. Uh, it took about a week to find out that I had multiple sclerosis, which is an autoimmune disease where your immune system kind of attacks your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I was in the middle of being a really busy mother of two uh, preteen daughters and owning a, a comedy club and um, also working at a law firm during the day. And uh, my life just kind of came to a complete halt. Um, And I was blind in my right eye and I couldn't really walk very well all of a sudden. So that shut everything down pretty much. Um, There wasn't much funny about it. Um, Was there a point where you could joke about it or do you remember ever sort of? You know, the first joke was as I was laying on the gurney outside the spinal tap room, I was like, so this is spinal tap. (laughs) 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 You know, because um, you can always find something that's hilarious, Mm -hmm. um, even in the worst of situations, which I have discovered is true. Um, so I did a lot of uh, reading and a lot of writing at that time, which was something different than what I'd been doing. So to stay creative that way. Um, and uh, just, I, I guess my biggest, the biggest thing that I've learned is that uh, greater living through medication is a real thing. And... Um, over the years, medications have gotten better. So um, all of a sudden, I'm on a new medication. I'm figuring out, uh, you know, physical therapy. You relearn how to walk again, all of that type of thing. And um, I think, okay, this is my big struggle. This is the thing. 
And then I find out I have kidney cancer. And so I'm like, oh, okay, there's another little, there's another little thing. So that was a setback. And, you know, you just keep going. Things get a little better. Oh, and then you get thyroid cancer. And it's another setback. It's another. So basically, um, three years ago, I was sitting at home on my couch disabled, unable to work. Um, Having had, uh, I was diagnosed with cancer in my other kidney. This is hilarious, isn't it? This is the funniest story. Sorry, Frank, you've been entertaining, but. Um, and I just decided that uh, I had been sitting in my home waiting for the next shoe to drop. So many shoes. I had so many feet, so many things dropping. But I thought, well, okay, I can sit here and wait for the next thing, or I can take control of my life which I hadn't been doing. I really, when things like that happen, you really tend to feel very sorry for yourself um, and expect everyone around you to do the same. And they complied. And so it was a really dark time. And I thought, what am I doing? This isn't any fun. And I wasn't able to do any improv at all, do comedy sports or anything. And it really was, uh, I had to make the decision to change that. Not that you can make the decision to feel well when you when you have a, a like a chronic mm. illness, and that's not what I'm saying. But there are a lot of things that you have control over that you don't realize you do mm. when you are just up against so many negative things. Yeah. And so I just decided it was time to kind of come out of this coma and figure my life out. Mm -hmm. um, because I realized I'm almost 50, which is so young. And I wasn't ready to be done at 48. Mm -hmm. So I got it together. They, yeah, it seems like in, only in like made-for-TV movies do people have one problem to deal right, with. Right, right, that's <laughs> you know, true. Most of the yes. time we have a, a combination of things we're wrestling with, and it's yeah, that's not true. easy. Not um, Frank, uh, somebody asked, where would you be if you hadn't stood up uh, and drove that truck illegally to buy and sell those watermelons. Where do you think you would be if that didn't happen? You know, I probably would not have graduated from high school where I was at the time. Uh, I probably would have had to shift to another one, uh, but it really was not in my DNA to give that up. I'll have to say that, you know, we, we were so poor, I inherited nothing, but I inherited something that was more valuable and more precious, and that is the desire and the wherewithal to become all that I could become, to use my few God-given talents to accomplish whatever I could. And it, and it started my personal mission, incidentally, which is to help others to use their talents in whatever way they can to become all they can become, which includes getting over the numerous setbacks that we all have. And I have to tell you, I've run across very few people who have overcome the setbacks that this woman has overcome. <laughs> Mia, that is wonderful. Oh, thank you. 
Well, and, and what I failed to mention is the biggest thing that helped me overcome it. Um, when you do improv, there are rules that you follow because you don't have a script. There's no script in improvisation. You take a suggestion from the audience and you're just expected to make things up. And um, so our number one rule in improv is yes and. You take the gift that someone has given you by whatever they've said and you say yes and you bring something and then they yes and that and you're building the scene and nothing nothing can move forward without the yes and and I realized there was no yes and in my life nothing was moving forward so when I finally decided to say yes and I'm going to take control of this situation is when things really started working out and it was a le- it was a, a rule I'd known about for years and had not been applying it to my own life. And have you found that, that if you focus on today, on what you can control today, that that helps you to get over whatever the problems are? It sure does. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. No, I was gonna ask all of you actually, because somebody had asked this, what is your greatest fear? What is your greatest Everything fear? that Frank discussed on his travels. <laughs> <laughs> the little backpack, only having the backpack because that's my blow dryer and my straightener. <laughs> um, the not having a guide when you get smart. So like everything he discussed are my greatest fears. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Frank, do you have a, a fear? Well, my greatest fear is that uh, I would lose my best critic and that is Katrina. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because she really does, she, she really is my inspiration and also the person who kind of set, you know, when I want to really go too much off of <laughs> off a script, she kind of gets me back on and nurtures me along the way. Nice. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. That's so, nice. Yeah. I just hope a reality star is never president. That's my greatest fear. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I just worry about it. And lay in bed and worry about it. I, I hear that. I hear that. Um, one of the things we did was randomly pull one of these as a winner. We're giving away, by the way, to one of you, a Toyota. Well, actually, it's a Toy Yoda and a Toy R2-D2. And a Toy... And that's going to go to whoever wrote this long que- batch of questions that include um, mentioning of the trips I used to run to Chicago. Who wrote that one? Oh, back there, you just won your Toyota, ladies and gentlemen. Um, multiple questions. She's asking about some uh, arts road trips that I used to run to Chicago and Cincinnati, and we do hope to get those back again and I will let you folks know when those happen again in addition to uh, encouraging you to see wonderful stuff here uh, we've taken some arts related road trips had some wonderful conversations on the bus went to Chicago to the uh, uh, the Contemporary Art Museum and then went to see Chicago Shakes production of Sunday in the Park with George we uh, went to see Warhorse down in Cincinnati and met with the uh, fight choreographers and the puppeteers down there so I love getting uh, a busload of arts people and arts fans and arts curious folks together and hitting the road. So we hope to do more of those and I just need to partner with the right bus folks so I don't have to deal with the insurance. So that's uh, that's part of it. Uh, let's see if there's another question in here. Oh, um, 
somebody's asking me, ran into an old Indianapolis Monthly article you wrote about losing your dad at a young age. Um, what impact did losing your dad at a young age have on your career? Uh, my dad died when I was about four of a heart attack. Um, and I wrote that story and I was blessed that Indianapolis Monthly let me write that story. I had done some math and calculated uh, to the day when I would become as old as my father ever was and when I would then become older than my father ever was the next day. And I wrote about that day for me. Um, it, it's so hard to, to talk about impact like that, not because it's hard to talk about, but because it's impossible to know. You know, it's sliding doors. It's um, not having a father. I didn't have that, um, that role model or that sense of here's how it's done. Um, so it really became a lot of, of making it up as I go along, um, searching uh, a little bit for um, people who might have something to teach me, um, but always being open and always being aware that I didn't know everything I needed to know or wanted to know. So I think maybe that's had a factor in that. It's kept me curious. It's kept me, I think, humble. It's kept me knowing and wanting to meet more people, have more experiences, see more things, absorb more art, um, try to get inside other people's heads a little bit. Because I think that's, I don't know about other people, but for me, that's the huge benefit of music and visual art and architecture and theater, which I love, is the opportunity, film, the opportunity to get inside somebody else's head for a while. When I was a kid, I don't read much of it anymore. Maybe there's great stuff out there. I used to read a lot of science fiction when I was a kid. And I always felt like, how can you possibly be racist, sexist, or homophobic if you've just been inside the head of some green person from you know a galaxy away? If you can relate and get in that person's head, why can't you appreciate the perspective of somebody who's right down your block? So I've always, uh, I think there's an, you don't want to feel like art is too medicinal, but I think one of the positive effects of being open to art and being open to music and being open to theater and all that is you're getting a chance to be inside somebody else's heart and head for a while. So I don't know if that's an answer to the question or not. Now, uh, now you know why whenever somebody asks me, who do I want to be when I grow up? I always say, Lou Harry. <laughs> and if you've been reading him for, for a while, you know that when you read what he writes, he not only tells you like it like it is, but he also educates you along the way. And it amazes me how much he knows about so many different things. Just curious, and that's, that will be edited out of the broadcast. Um, <laughs> somebody wanted to know how we first met. How did we first meet? Was it just editing your columns? I know I knew of you for years and knew you know, about I, you. But, I think it was. But it was yep. when I was on staff at the Indianapolis Business Journal, one of the things that uh, I talked to Frank about was doing a quarterly travel column about his experiences and we started, we met through writing and editing. And yep. I loved his stuff and uh, had the honor of working as an editor on the book as well, so. And as I've said before, I can't write, but I was fortunate enough to have an editor no, no, that's, who that's knew it. Wildly and, incorrect. And, and even before you got it, you know who got it before you got mm -hmm. it? Katrina. Oh, there you go. She reviewed my article, then yeah. he did my article. So whenever you finally got the final copy, really wasn't my work. Mine, no, 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 no. Minor <laughs> nipping and tucking, but we won't get into that. Um, that was all of our questions. Um, 
boy, I want to. This has been a wonderful experience for me. I hope you enjoyed uh, being here. I want to thank our live audience today, our yes. guests, Mia, Frank, and Vess. Also, thanks going out for a wide variety of reasons to Patrick Chastain, our producer. Uh, to Paul F. Tompkins, a friend and podcaster and inspiration. To Jonah Harry, Cindy Harry, to Dan Wakefield, uh, to both Statler and Waldorf. To Joan Tewksbury, who was the screenwriter on Robert Altman's Nashville and gets no credit, but it's one of my favorite movies. Um, to the guy who plays the mayor of Main Street at Disney World. I always love that guy. Um, to Paul Lynn in the center square. Uh, to Susie Stefan, a wonderful inspiration and writer. To the Paragua guy from In the Heights. You know the musical In the Heights? He's my old roommate! He is? You're kidding. Yes. I want him in every Broadway show. I want the Paragua guy to just come by. That is a beautiful thing. Uh, to both Ramona and Beezus, to Harlan Ellison, <laughs> to Senator Jefferson Smith, to Max Bialystok and Leo Bloom, to Mike Douglas, the yeah. TV host, and to all of those who are listening at on the podcast, let's get together again soon. Keep your eyes and your heart open. Thank you so much.